and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. The New Zealand government is looking to launch a business growth fund in partnership with banks that would make equity investments in small and medium-sized New Zealand businesses. The idea is to provide SMEs with access to long-term equity investment, which they currently struggle to obtain in many cases, and this could help them grow. Establishing a business growth fund was a recommendation from the New Zealand Small Business Strategy, which was issued by the government's Small Business Council in 2019. It's mirrored on similar funds already up and running in Australia, the United Kingdom and Canada. The Australian Business Growth Fund's initial funding includes $100 million from Australia's federal government, plus $100 million each from the parents of New Zealand's big four banks being ANZ New Zealand, ASB, BNZ and Westpac New Zealand, and also has received $20 million each from HSBC and Macquarie Group. The Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of the Australian Business Growth Fund is Anthony Healy. Anthony is well known in New Zealand because he used to be the CEO of BNZ for three years, and prior to that, he headed up BNZ's business banking unit, BNZ Partners. In 2017, Anthony returned to Melbourne to take up senior executive roles at BNZ's parent National Australia Bank before becoming the Australian Business Growth Fund's inaugural CEO in October 2020. Anthony is our guest for this episode to talk about the Business Growth Fund concept and what it could mean in New Zealand. Hi, Anthony, and um, thanks for joining us and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. Hi, Gareth, and, and thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, I thought it might be interesting if we first talk about how and why you actually got involved in the Australian Business Growth Fund, because you, you're obviously in a, you were in a senior role at, at NAB, National Australia Bank. Um, so what, uh, what was it that enticed you to, to move to this, this new startup? Yeah, well, in fact, uh, it was while I was in the role heading up the Business Bank of National Australia Bank that I went to the UK to look at developments in the, in the banking market. Uh, in 2018. And at that point, uh, I was uh, introduced to the British Growth Fund by one of the CEOs of the banks in the UK. Uh, I met with uh, the executives from the fund and it, it represented to me a solution to a problem that I'd seen probably throughout most of my banking career, which was this gap in the market for long-term patient growth capital or equity capital for small and medium businesses. Uh, I'd been involved in a couple of it, attempts to solve that. One way back when I was at ANZ uh, and lived in New Zealand uh, back in sort of 2000. They called it at the time Wall Street to Main Street. Uh, and I saw the impact and, and frankly the transformational impact that growth capital could have on those small and medium businesses. So I brought the idea back from the UK. I obviously engaged with the government and the major banks uh, and obviously in my role as heading up the business bank at NAB, I, I worked probably for 12, 18 months. Uh, we formed a working group with all of the banks and, and you know, I, I had my day job, but I was uh, lobbying, I guess, the banks and the government to support this. Uh, and uh, we, we sort of worked it up, built the fund out uh, over that, or at least the plan for the fund. We then got commitments from all of the banks and the government uh, and then... Uh, I was approached by some of the shareholders to see if I'd be interested in leading the fund. And of course, I'd sort of steered it from idea through to incorporation. So I was, I was um, you know, delighted to take on the role. And, um, you know, that's almost two years ago. And uh, it's, been, it's been great ever since, really. 
Can you just talk a little bit more about that gap that you 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 see now? I mean, you, you're obviously a very experienced banker who's worked with um, on the, in the business banking side of banking in a lot of your your career at BNZ, NAB, ANZ. What what is that gap in the, in the market, and and why is it there? Well, I think uh, each pro- provider of capital, if you like, in the market plays their role and plays that role within their risk appetite. So for banks who you know, are pretty heavily regulated and, and need to keep within pretty, um, you know, in some ways conservative bounds around how they can provide capital for, for businesses and provide capital for growth. So, you know, obviously uh, there is equity and debt in a business and uh, a business needs the right balance of both. And I think what often happens is, you know, businesses get started, family and friends put in a bit of equity, they early on, it's hard to access debt capital because you don't have security. You may not have significant profitability early on to service a big debt load. So businesses often, you know, struggle to access the right funding to take them to, ne- to the next stage of growth. Now, if you take that one step further and you think about high growth businesses or businesses with the potential to grow significantly, it is uh, equally challenging for them to access sufficient capital, whether it's debt or equity, to take them to that next stage. So if they've got security or if they've got steady earnings uh, and they've got a, a reasonably manageable and predictable working capital cycle, that's something banks do all day, every day. But when it comes to a step change in growth or a step change in the capital that they need, that's something that often will lie outside of a bank's risk appetite. And so that's perfectly understandable because that's why you have equity capital. And you want to get that balance right. So um, that's kind of why banks can go to a certain point and then not any further. Then, then you have to look in the market for, okay, who are the equity capital providers who can provide that capital that to, to kind of bridge the gap? And what you find in the market, if you like, for equity growth capital, you've got at the, at the early stage, you've got VC funds. They write typically smaller checks, they, they um, invest often pre-revenue or pre-profit. And that's and largely that market is focused on kind of hyper-growth businesses, often in tech, uh, usually in tech, or in, you know, early stage healthcare and pharma and stuff like that. And so that market, there's plenty of VC capital around. And you'll know the Ice House well, and they have their Ice Angel funds, and there are plenty of VC funds in Australia as well. That's at the early stage end. Uh, at the larger end, there are what are called buyout funds. They are private equity funds that invest. They typically write much bigger checks uh, and they want control most of the time. So when they invest, they'll say, we want more than 50% so that we can you know, control the destiny of the business, you know, sack the management or board if we need to, and, and basically uh, force the exit. So they'll exit when they feel is the optimal time for them, but it may not be the optimal time for the entrepreneur. And most entrepreneurs, in my experience, want to hold on to control of their business as long as they can. And so if we could provide in between those two pools of capital, the kind of check size that suits small and medium businesses without them having to give up control, we, I felt, we felt, uh, the shareholders felt that that was an ideal gap for us to be addressing. And 
in all my career, speaking to entrepreneurs and founders, that's exactly what the step where they tend to kind of fail or not fail as a business, but fail to attract the right capital. And so then what happens is they kind of limit their ambitions for growth in their business because they define it through the lens of what the bank will lend them, not what could I do if capital was not an issue. Uh, so, so that's kind of the gap. And you saw the UK fund address that gap coming out of the GFC. Uh, the UK banks were under a lot of criticism post-GFC. And so the government uh, at that point probably owned two or three of the UK banks because they'd bailed them out. And they said, okay, we want you to establish this fund. Uh, we can see that small and medium businesses lack access to that sort of growth capital. And if and, and if we want to refloat the UK economy post-GFC, we need more capital to support businesses to grow. So when you approached the banks in Australia, so you've got six on board now as, as shareholders, but when you had those initial conversations, and I mean, you were in NAB at the time, but when you started talking about it with, you know, your, your I guess, your colleagues, your, your counterparts at other banks, what was the initial reaction within the bank, the big banks there to this idea? Well, I, the first point I'd make is all of the banks uh, recognised and I guess agreed that there was this gap. So there was no debate about whether there was a gap in the market or whether uh, whether uh, SMEs were limited in their capacity to grow because there wasn't a depth and liquidity in this sort of gap here. And there are some smaller investors that on occasion will invest in SMEs in this space, but there wasn't a kind of sufficient liquidity. So I think all, all of the banks agreed that the gap existed and that uh, there was a solution needed. Uh, but it took, you know, it's fair to say it took a year, 18 months to get them all aligned around the idea of them creating the fund and putting their own capital in. I think um, for, for good reason, banks are debt uh, institutions. That's how they're built. That's how they're regulated. And so wander, weighing into the world of equity, and which is a completely different risk and return profile, uh, was not something that uh, banks you know, jumped at immediately. And it's certainly something they're very conscious that if you think about the shareholders of banks, they invest in banks because of their long-term stable earnings, which is a debt profile, not an equity profile, uh, in terms of what they uh, deploy their capital into. So, you know, it took, it's fair to say it took a while. And, and I think we had to satisfy a, a number of requirements from the banks uh, in order to get them comfortable. And, and, you know, some of the banks were probably earlier committers than others, but as we worked through it, uh, the first thing was to help them understand that this wasn't going to sit on their balance sheets as a, a kind of equity um, instrument uh, and, and that they, on their balance sheet, wouldn't have individual exposure to individual SMEs. This would be a properly professionally run private equity fund with all the right governance and investment processes and it would be a diversified portfolio, et cetera. So I think we had to work through all of that. Uh, we secondly had to work through a business plan and a resourcing profile and a return profile, frankly, that they were happy with. Thirdly, um, one of the uh, other critical elements was uh, getting uh, alignment with APRA, that not only were APRA as the regulator comfortable with this fund being established and the banks investing in it, but that there would be a different uh, risk capital treatment or risk weighting treatment for their investment into the fund. Uh, and then I think uh, finally, 
you know, we did we did a fair bit of work to prove up for them to their satisfaction that the gap really existed. I think, you know, the most, uh, if you like, um, the most influential element of that was we, we, you could see it in the UK and was had been working for 10 years and they'd invested in 450, 500 businesses. You could see it was already working in Canada where today they probably invested in 30 or 40 businesses. So you had precedents in markets that weren't uh, weren't terribly different to the New Zealand, uh, to, sorry, to the Australian market. So that, they're all the things that I guess the elements that we needed to uh, bring to the table to convince the banks to commit. And what about the government? I mean, how, how difficult was it to get the government over the line? Well, the government was very supportive of the concept uh, and, and obviously they worked closely with us to, to align all the banks. So we had a committed group. I didn't actually ask the government to put capital in. That that was something that they uh, offered up. And, you know, it's it's typically more likely that a Labor government would look at putting capital like this into a fund like this uh, than a Liberal government or a national government in the case of um, New Zealand. But we had a Liberal government in Australia and they were very keen to support the fund, not only uh, from a government kind of policy perspective, but they committed the capital. And so um, I didn't need to convince them of that. And you've obviously had a change of government since since you, you launched. So you, you do have a Labor government now. Is that support from the government still the same as it was? Yes, it is. They've, they've indicated strong support for the fund. Uh, I think uh, there, there is, and it's probably, you know, uh, been prompted by the you know, kind of hangover or recovery that we're looking to build from from the from all of the um, COVID sort of shutdowns and, and downturn in the economy. Uh, but they've been very keen as a government to set out a, a number of policy objectives around supporting in businesses and industries and segments of the economy to grow. And recently, in fact, the, the Treasurer uh, here in Australia, Jim Chalmers, wrote an essay which was in, I think, The Monthly, which is a, a sort of uh, thought uh, leadership magazine here. And he wrote about the importance of public-private partnerships and that uh, the market didn't solve all problems and where you could see market failures, and that's another way of describing a gap in the market that we've identified, where there are market failures, there was a there were precedents for and opportunities for government and private sector capital to work together to help solve those market failures. So I think the fund's actually very aligned to the philosophy of the incoming government. And, and there's a lot of work to do, as as you would know, to support the economy and, and, and particular industries, particularly around things like reshoring uh, sovereign, you know, manufacturing capability because of the supply chain issues that we saw over a number of years. So I think the government's been very supportive. So, I mean, you obviously know New Zealand well, you know the New Zealand banking scene well, you know the New Zealand business um, scene well. So given that, what, you know, do you think the business growth fund model would mean in New Zealand? And do you, do you think it would be a good fit here and it would work well and, and why? Well, um, the I know uh, how... Um, strongly Kiwis feel about distinguishing themselves from Australia. And, and I have a great sympathy for that. But at the same time, the economies, the, the, the market, the, the business environment, they're very similar. And, you know, the banking system's pretty similar. Uh, and so 
there's not a lot of differences that would suggest to you that, that the model wouldn't work in New Zealand. And that was exactly my thinking when I saw the model in the UK and went, wow, we're in a very similar, you know, regulatory environment, similar shape uh, of SMEs uh, in terms of the proportion of what SMEs account for in an economy as in the UK and Canada, you know, Western countries, um, uh, free markets, et cetera. So, you know, it was a, it was a pretty obvious parallel. And I would say that's probably even more so between Australia and New Zealand. Uh, oh, there, are no, there are no differences that I could identify that would suggest the fund wouldn't work. Uh, and I think, you know, the banks in New Zealand, their parent banks obviously supported the concept here. So it, it's not unknown to them, but I'm sure they want to be satisfied just as the banks were here that of, of some of those preconditions I talked about. I know there's a lot of work going on in New Zealand to kind of in some ways prove up the gap to align align the government with the banks so that they can get commitments. So that work I'm, I'm assuming is ongoing, uh, but you know there is no reason to believe the fund wouldn't work in New Zealand because it's worked here and it's worked in other like economies and countries. Now we, we spoke um, probably almost a year ago about this when um, the government um, set aside some money in last year's budget for potentially a business growth fund. And you, at that time, you said that there's an Australia Inc. angle to the Australian Business Growth Fund, as there would be a New Zealand Inc. angle for a New Zealand Business Growth Fund. I, I thought that was a really interesting point, and I thought it'd be good just to tap into that for the benefit of our listeners and, and talk about what you mean by that. Well, from an Australian perspective, and it would be the same in New Zealand, uh, the the fund that we've set up not only does it have to be sustainable i.e it delivers commercial returns for shareholders uh, but we measure uh, the impact that the fund has so obviously we're trying to address a market failure number one number two we measure job creation we measure uh, growth in exports we measure the diversification of the portfolio across both metro and regional so that we're getting good reach into regional australia uh, and and the overall, the economic impact that the fund has on the Australian economy. And I think all of the banks and the government are committed to that concept that this, whilst this fund has to be sustainable from a commercial uh, objective, the only reason we've established the fund is to address this gap so that we can support uh, founders, entrepreneurs, the SME economy to grow and scale because it's good for Australia and it's good for the Australian economy. And I think that concept of New Zealand Inc. is even stronger in New Zealand than, I, than I've observed it in Australia. Um, a very strong commitment to, you know, New Zealand's a smaller country, it's more connected, uh, and I think you've, it's got a tradition of uh, the banks and, and other corporates and the government working together to advance uh, the economic outcomes and social outcomes of the country. So I, I think that's, I mean, that's why I wanted to form the fund, uh, and that's why I think the banks and the government committed to it here. And, I mean, from the perspective of the banks, what's in it for them? Well, that's on a number of levels. I, I think the first one is uh, the concept of a, of a public-private partnership and making that work in concert with government is good for, for all those stakeholders in terms of building relationships between private sector and government uh, so, and there's a reputational benefit to that too, I think, where the banks can be seen to be stepping out of their usual kind of role and contributing to something that's going to benefit 
uh, the Australian or in your case, New Zealand economy. Uh, second or third, I guess, is that um, we've built uh, extensive relationships, if you like, with the bank, the networks of bankers across all of the banks. And so every time we invest in a business, it's banked by one of our shareholder banks. That business therefore becomes more resilient when we invest capital, we lower its risk profile, we fund it to grow. And then when it grows, it also grows the other side of its funding envelope, which is the debt. And so the bank gets to see these customers that they bank, uh, transform and grow and become even more valuable customers to the bank. And then finally, if you're a banker and you introduce your client to the fund and we invest in that client, that transformational step for the client, that they'll be so loyal to their bank and so grateful for the introduction. Uh, so it builds a stronger relationship, a more loyal relationship, you know, things like customer retention over the long term uh, goes up. And I think the benefit or the experience of the banker when they get involved in one of these transactions, they learn a hell of a lot. And we have secondes in from each of our shareholder banks. And so they spend a year with us helping kind of educate the bankers in their bank. They go back as a better banker. And so we're trying to add as much value as we can uh, to, to those banks and bankers when, they, when they're as shareholders and also as, I guess, referral networks for us. Can you tell us a little bit about the investments you've made to date? I believe you've you've made eight so far, and and indeed how the dis, the investment decisions are made. Yeah, well, you're right. We've we've so far made eight in I guess in eighteen months. Given uh, I had to hire everyone first, uh, but but once the team was established and we we were up and running, it's it's been just on eighteen months. Eight investments, just over a hundred million of capital deployed, so about twenty percent almost of our capital deployed so far. Uh, and there are a whole range of businesses. The first one we invested in was a, a, a battery technology, electric electrification of vehicles company. So it electrifies uh, heavy duty vehicles in high risk industries like mining and defense. Um, we've invested in the healthcare business, invested in a last mile logistics business, uh, in a advanced manufacturing business, uh, in an aviation business out of the Kimberley in Western Australia, uh, in an online um, home furnishings business. So some like without engineering it that way, it's already turned out to be a very diversified portfolio of companies with great entrepreneurs and founders with, you know, really significant growth prospects. Um, and I, I didn't mention a software company as well. So a great portfolio already, all, all great businesses with unique value propositions. I would describe them all as disruptors. They, they're doing something different in the market uh, to, a bit like us in some ways, to, um, you know, take advantage of a gap or, or reimagine how customer service delivered in their segment. So great, exciting businesses. Uh, the way the investment process works out is when we're introduced either from an advisor or from one of the banks or, or they come through our website. When, when we first meet with a potential uh, investee business, we, uh, we do what, what I would call commercial due diligence to start with. So that's where we get to know the founder and the business and the markets they're in and their business model. We do all of that internally, the commercial due diligence. Uh, that can take 
you know, three to four weeks uh, of, you know, pretty intense work, understanding all of those dynamics, their financials, et cetera. Uh, and then if, if that all stacks up, we, then the team take uh, an invest, the investment proposal, if you like, to the investment committee for what we call IC1. I chair the investment committee uh, and the senior investment team uh, members are, are the other voting members. Uh, and that comes with a term sheet. So they've already agreed the terms with the founder on which they'd invest. And then if that all stacks up, we approve it to go to the next stage, which is where you, you engage outside third parties to do financial tax and legal due diligence. That's, a more, you know, that's the kind of traditional DD process that investment uh, usually takes. That can take as little as three to four weeks as well. Uh, and provided the third party due diligence stacks up, then we would then write the check and, and uh, invest. So that can be as little as eight weeks, but it does depend on a whole range of issues, including quality of information that we might get up front. So um, that's the investment process. It's, it's pretty thorough. Uh, it's shorter than a typical private equity firm. Uh, and that's largely because we're writing smaller checks Whereas, a, you know, if a, a big private equity fund is going to buy out, i.e. wholly own a business and write a cheque for a billion dollars, they're going to do a lot more due diligence. Um, but I think the most important part of the due diligence for us is assessing and evaluating quality of management uh, and, and alignment with the founder. Because you can have a great historical track record, you can have great financials, but if you haven't got the capability and, you know, management capability to execute on the growth plans you've got, then you're not going to succeed. So we spend a lot more time than I, I think a lot of other investors do on really understanding management capability. And in terms of, of the investments, what's the dollar size? Can you give us a bit of info on the dollar size of them? And um, I guess you take up to 49% of the company? Yeah, so maximum 49, that's right, Gareth. And the check size, we have a very clear mandate that we write checks between five and 15 million as the initial investment. We can do a follow-on of another five to 15. In fact, we've, we've already done one, uh, two follow-ons now in two of our investee companies. The average check size, you know, it's the math. So we've uh, done a hundred million and eight investments. You know, that's just over 12 million on average. Uh, some of them have been 15 million, some have been less, you know, 7.5, I think was the smallest check we've written. Uh, and we've co-invested on a couple of deals uh, with the Clean Energy Finance Corp, which uh, which was the battery technology company, and then we had an e-waste recycling business, which I forgot to mention before. Those two we've co-invested with the Clean Energy Finance Corp, which is a, obviously a government investment agency. And have you turned down a lot of investment opportunities so far? Yeah, we have. We, I mean, we've looked at several hundred uh, opportunities. And I'd say the, the first thing I'd say is we get a lot of referrals where they're just not investment ready. I'd say that's two, -third of the, two thirds of the referrals where it's a good company, they've got good management, they've probably got some growth prospects, but they're just not investment ready for one of a, a number of reasons. Either they can't clearly enough define how they're going to uh, you know, access that growth, or they're not clear what they need the capital for, or they need a lot more work on their financials, or they need to fill some management gaps, uh, or they're just a bit early stage. So with all of those businesses, we, we spend, and partly because of who our shareholders are, we spend quality time with those businesses, even though they're not ready for investment. And we say, if you want to be investment ready, here's the steps you need to take. 
often it's you need to get an advisor to help you go through this process. And then uh, I think a lot of those uh, businesses will come back to us when they are investment ready. Uh, and, you know, some of them don't have a competitive advantage uh, and so we wouldn't invest or they don't have a defensible market position. You know, there's obvious investment reasons why you wouldn't invest. And then there's just some that don't meet the mandate. They're either too big or too, too small or they might be in an industry that we sort of have carved out as an industry we don't uh, invest in. And what sort of returns um, can or do your shareholders expect? Well, uh, we, we don't disclose our uh, specific return hurdles, but if I was to give you a picture of what typical private equity funds do, and we're somewhere in this range, is obviously you want your money back, which is one times money, and then you want a return for your shareholders above the one times money. On average, private equity firms in their investments Typically, uh, the returns for the vast bulk of investments is somewhere between one and a half times money and three times money. Uh, you know, you might get a five times money or a ten times on a on a one or occasional opportunity where it's just hit the bull out of the park. But usually, it's in that one one and a half to three times money. Uh, and I think each each investment though is quite different. If it's a higher risk investment or a higher risk profile you'd expect a higher multiple if it's a lower risk business, more mature business, for instance, uh, you'd expect a, uh, or at least you would accept a lower multiple. Uh, and if it's early stage, you'd expect a higher multiple because they're usually earlier stage businesses are riskier. Uh, and then it, it really depends on the holding time. So because we're a minority investor, we can't force an exit. We, we align with and partner with the founder over the long term. So the longer you're in an investment, uh, you know, that let's call it two times money translates to a lower percentage return over time because you, your holding period's longer. And so our holding period will be typically longer than a typical PE fund because we have no ability to force an exit. In the UK, I think the average term of investment's about four and a half years. But the exits are determined by the founder when it makes sense for the founder. So that gives you a bit of a feel for returns. Okay. So you anticipate that your investment terms will be similar to the UK, that sort of four and a half years, and, and the exit yeah. will be a some sort of sale, I assume. Yeah, well, I, I think on average, yes, I'd expect us to be sort of four and a half to five years average exit time. Some will be longer and some will be shorter. Uh, there are a number of exit options, and you do work uh, hard with the founder upfront before you invest to align on what their plans are and what exit options you know, the two of you can agree or you can sort of align around. The most obvious is a trade sale. And that's probably the most common where the founder would say, look, I want to grow this business uh, to a certain size and scale and value. And then I'd be looking to exit at this point. And so a trade sale to another business in the like industry or a competitor is often the case. Uh, secondly, what, what I would call a secondary buyout. So sometimes a founder will say, look, I want to stay in for the long term, but I recognise that you only want to stay in for a certain period and I'm going to need more capital down the track, which will be outside your mandate. So at that point, another investor or private equity player might come in and take us out as an investor. The third option could be an IPO if it grows and gets to a, enough of a scale and size. Uh, or the fourth could be the business, if it's uh, if it's got capacity in its balance sheet, could re-leverage its balance sheet to start to... Um, you know, buy back our equity uh, over time. 
Uh, and we, we also require after a certain number of years, usually after five years, a preferred dividend uh, so that we can start, we will say to the founder, look, we're happy to stay in for longer, but we do want to start to see a cash yield on our investment over time. And what happens if one of the investments goes pear-shaped? I mean, I guess there's a few possibilities and different ways things can go wrong. Um, what, what, what would happen? Well, it's inevitable in, in investment uh, and, and certainly in banking too that businesses, uh, you know, get into trouble. And, and we won't uh, be any different to other investors in, in a business uh, if, if you can see a way through the, the challenges, you might put more capital in to support them through, you know, a period where that, their cash flows might be challenged. If it's an earlier stage business in particular, they often have a higher cash burn rate. So we'll often model out a follow-on investment at some point when we know the cash is going to start running out uh, because they need another tranche of capital to get them through the sort of that phase and into a more steady state. Um, we obviously, when we invest, we put a member of our investment team on the board and we also require the founder to appoint an independent non-executive chair and that uh, chair will usually come from our talent network, which we've built up of, you know, board-ready ex-entrepreneurs and directors. Um, so we work together with the founder or with the owner, with the board, uh, and we'll provide whatever support uh, is needed to help that business address whatever the issues are, turn the business around. If it needs more capital, we'll often put capital in. So we're, we're a rational investor, but a very supportive investor. And, you know, we're in there for the long run. Um, that sometimes means, though, that if we invest more, the, the founder or owner will get uh, some dilution if they're not able to put in capital at the same time. Um just interested in how big you are now. I believe you've got around 30 staff and you're obviously in Melbourne. There's also an office in Sydney. Um, so just be interested in, in how big you think your team will get in time. And also, I assume at some point you will have invested all your shareholders' capital and you'll go back to them for more. Um, I mean, how, how soon could that be? And, and will you even bring in more shareholders in the future? Yeah, well, to, to answer your first question first, the we've got offices in Melbourne and Sydney We've got 29 staff and it's almost evenly split between Sydney and Melbourne. So I spend a fair bit of time in Sydney as well. Uh, as to how big we get, because we're probably at a stage now where we can handle, you know, a steady state, eight to 10 investments a year, but it will be a bit demand driven. So if we start to see more and more demand uh, for our capital and more and more businesses we find that we can invest in, then I'd hire more people, I'd open, I, I could potentially open offices in Brisbane or Perth or Adelaide if there's more demand in those states because having boots on the ground really helps. Uh, if you think about the UK uh, fund, they, they're now a £4.5 billion fund. Some of that is the compounding of reinvestment after exits. Uh, and they've got 14 offices in the UK and a couple of hundred staff. So they, they, they're now close to the largest you know, growth capital investor, or at least by a number of investments a year in the world. that They, in a typical year, would be investing in 50 to 70 businesses and at the same time exiting 50 to 70 because they're kind of at a steady, steady state. So I think how big we get will be a bit determined by demand. But at the moment, we're, we've got a size and scale that kind of fits the, the business as usual trajectory we've got. Um, from a capital perspective, it does depend a bit on when you hit steady state. When you hit steady state, like the UK has now, the, 
the capital that they're realizing from their exits each year is sufficient to fund the next lot of investments. Because of course, we're an evergreen fund. Unlike your typical PE fund, we don't return the capital after we've invested it and then exited the investments. Every time we exit an investment, we put the capital plus whatever returns back into the fund to invest in the next lot of SMEs. So um, if, if our capital deployment accelerates and, and you know exits are delayed a bit, then we will need to raise more capital. If we get exits early and they're good exits, then we may not need to raise more capital. But it does depend on if demand accelerates, we'll need more capital. So I'm I'm not, I suppose in a way I'm hedging my bets, but what I'm really saying is um, we'll have to wait and see what the profile looks like of capital deployment versus realizations. Uh, but my my ambition would be to grow the fund. So we would uh, have a number of options in that case. We could go back to our existing shareholders. They made public statements when we set up the fund that they wanted to grow the fund to a billion. Now, that could mean just by reinvestment, but if there's a gap, we don't want to run out of capital, so we would go, go, <coughs> excuse me, go back to our shareholders and look to raise more from them. But we want to prove the model and demonstrate that we can generate attractive returns so that we could also diversify the shareholder base uh, if we chose to do so, and access capital from super funds or or other investment institutions. So we have a few options, but it all will depend on how well the portfolio performs, obviously, and then how quickly we deploy capital versus realise capital from exits. Just finally, Anthony, um, you know, tapping into your knowledge of, of New Zealand and obviously what you've done with the Australian Business Growth Fund, what do you think would be a good scale for a New Zealand business growth fund to start at? I mean, you had, what, $540 million, um, from your shareholders to begin with. What would be a, a good sort of size for a New Zealand fund to start with? And also, what, what sort of businesses in New Zealand should be thinking that this could be uh, an opportunity for them? Well, I think in terms of size, uh, what, what I've encouraged the banks in New Zealand and, and the government to think about is don't try and make it proportional to the Australian economy. So if we've got 540 in your X percent of our economy in size, you should scale it down by that much because there is tens of thousands of SMEs that would fit the profile in New Zealand. Uh, it's a it's a large economy. And so you, you don't want to uh, you don't want to end up with a capital pool that's just a little small and you've got to go back to your shareholders in a year or two because you've deployed the capital. I think you know four or five hundred millions probably feels like about the right number. Um, and so, and I think the government's even talked about that being a number that, that they'd be hoping to achieve. Um, because the problem is if you, if you, if you undersize the fund, you're just going back to your shareholders or to other investors too early. You want sufficient capital to probably get you through five years so you can prove the model, start generating exits. So then you're in a position to raise more capital. So I, I think that feels like about the right number. But it'll of course be up to the government and the banks in New Zealand. Um, in terms of businesses that should be thinking about the fund, I think it'll be a very diverse group of businesses. They could be in every sector of the economy. Frankly, the only ones we uh, we have excluded is we've got some ESG restrictions, as you'd expect with uh, banks and government as shareholders. We don't do mineral resource extraction, so mining, because that's a very specialised field. Uh, we don't do property development because that's just another uh, sort of asset class that's better served. Uh, and it would be hard for us to do pre-farm gate, I think, so broad acre farming. Uh, but 
I think more intense agriculture, and I think dairy would be included in that, would be something you could look at. So um, I would say businesses in, in most industries that have, you know, attractive growth prospects, looking to enter new markets, uh, they might want to solve succession issues in the long run, uh, or, or frankly, with a couple that we've invested in, they got to a point where there was a bit of tension in the relationship with the bank because the bank's saying, look, we can only lend you this much. And the founders or the owners saying, well, actually, I need two or three times that amount to realise the growth opportunities I have in front of me. So some businesses will say, look, I'm a bit frustrated with my bank because I feel I need more capital and they can't provide it. Often you'll find they're the sort of situations where an owner says, maybe I'm thinking about it in the wrong way. Maybe I should be thinking about it as this, I've got a certain debt capacity and then to grow further and to access more capital, I'll need more equity. Look, Anthony, thanks a lot for that. That's really interesting to hear what you've been doing at the Australian Business Growth Fund and also to get your thoughts on the prospects for a similar fund in New Zealand. That is the Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of the Australian Business Growth Fund, Anthony Healy, and I'm Gareth Vaughan at interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.